The rest of us will go in our Bibles to James, the book of James. We'll look at an overview of this wonderful book. Today, and then we'll start verse by verse into it next week, uh, Lord willing. It'll probably take us several months, maybe till Christmas, to get through the truth uh, here. I love baptisms. I hope you do too. I'll ask Daniel and Peter if you guys will join me after at uh, at the uh, the back door, so you can uh, greet them. And uh, I'll thank you for coming, and they'll thank you for coming. And uh, what a privilege it is as a pastor to have families in church that uh, teach the gospel and preach God's word in their homes and uh, help their young people to know Christ uh, from an early age. I will never baptize someone whose parents want them to be baptized. These were these two young men's uh, choices, and so I don't do that with my kids either. Uh, It has to be their choice uh, to follow the Lord. And it is the first step of obedience after salvation uh, to tell everyone that you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you desire to follow him. And so we're thrilled to have these uh, young men uh, take that uh, step of obedience. Well, if uh, I were to ask you what the book of James is about, you may have come up with what uh, the scripture reading was today, James 2. Faith without works is dead, and that is a good uh, summary. Some say that um, uh, verse 8 of chapter 2 may be a good theme verse or part of the second uh, part of of James 2. But we're going to look today at an overview of this uh, book. It's only five chapters, 108 verses long. And we'll look at an overview today of who James was, when did he write, to whom did he write, what did he write, and then we'll finish with why did he write, because this is why we need this book today and why we need uh, God's Word. Every book of the Bible is unique. None of them are exactly like other uh, books, and we need all 66 books in the Bible to have a complete Bible. And so James uh, fits in uh, very well. i try to tell you how it fits in uh, to the rest of Scripture. And uh, we will see um, this uh, wonderfully short book. I had the uh, privilege of uh, studying it a lot, trying to memorize it in college. Uh, when I had cassette tapes, I wore out the one that was James uh, when I was uh, in, um, in college, listening to it in my car, trying to memorize uh, this book. And so if I sound a little bit King James-ish, uh, that's what I memorized uh, or tried to, uh, this book. And so uh, we are looking at uh, this book together. So who is James? James is not an apostle, which makes this book unique, because most of the uh, New Testament, 27 books of our New Testament, were written by an apostle or someone uh, who had um, uh, been with Christ, uh, seen Christ, and James fits into that second category. He wasn't an apostle like uh, Peter or uh, John or Paul, uh, but he is... Um, There are four different Jameses in the New Testament, and uh, we can eliminate a couple of them. Uh, The 
the probably the most other obvious choice, somewhat obvious choice, would be the Apostle James. Peter, James, and John, we know those three as walking with Christ and closely associated with Christ as the inner circle of disciples. And so James the Apostle comes to mind as a, a likely candidate to who wrote this, but he is the first martyr of the apostles, and that is recorded for us in the book of Acts. So he is not the author of this because when Peter and James were in prison, uh, James was, uh, was martyred. Uh, by Herod, and he thought to do the same thing to Peter when Peter was let out of prison in the middle of the night, and we have that story in the book of Acts that we've seen. So this book is written, uh, can't be written by the Apostle James. There's a few other parents of uh, Christian leaders that were, um, were named James. There's another lesser apostle called James the Less, or James the son of Alphaeus, and uh, we don't know hardly anything about him. Uh, other than um, what church history uh, will tell us. But based on uh, the author of this book, based on who he is, uh, he is most likely the pastor of the first Jerusalem church. We know the Jerusalem church grew rapidly. From the day of Pentecost, there were 120 people at the beginning of Pentecost. The end of that first day when the Holy Spirit came and indwelt uh, believers, the 3,000 were added. And then daily, people were being added to the church in the early part of the book of Acts. And another day, 5,000 more men, plus women and children, were added to the church. So the church of Jerusalem had to be roughly 20,000 people, uh, and uh, a megachurch, we would say today. Uh, and they were divided uh, into house churches. They didn't have one building, or they didn't have an amphitheater that they met in. Uh, they didn't have church buildings until the second century after Christ, so they would have had to be in smaller churches, and James oversaw all of those house churches uh, and uh, was the leader of uh, them, and we'll see him. He is in Scripture in John 7, verses 2 to 5. He is the Lord's half-brother. He is mentioned first in a list here and in Matthew uh, 13 as uh, a, the Lord's half-brother. Christ had no full brothers or sisters because he did not have an earthly father. And so he was, James was uh, most likely Mary and Joseph's, um, may have been the oldest, and sometimes the list in our Bibles of siblings uh, are by priority, sometimes they're by age, who's the oldest to the youngest, and so James uh, was listed first. But he rejected Jesus in John 7. He is not a follower of his half-brother until after uh, the resurrection, then we see him uh, named and numbered with the uh, other disciples. He's a pastor of the Jerusalem church. As I said, his name is mentioned in Acts 12, 17, Acts 15, 13, and 21, 18. And the, the uh, key reference there is the middle one, 15, 13. Whenever they had a Jerusalem council, they weren't sure how to treat uh, Jewish uh, or Gentile people should they be circumcised like Jewish people were to be included in uh the Christian faith, uh, they had a Jerusalem council, and James was the one who decided, after hearing all of the, uh, the debate, the talks, and the uh, discussion, James is, had the authority as the pastor of the church, after Peter and Paul and others uh, spoke, that James's decision was the final decision, which gives him the uh, leadership, shows his leadership there which makes him the likely candidate to write uh, the book of James as he is well-respected among the Jewish community 
especially when we get to Acts, uh, and still in Acts, um, Acts 15, which is almost 20 years after Christ has ascended back to heaven. Galatians 1, P, uh, Paul writes to the, uh, the church of Galatia, and he refers to James as the pillar of the church in Galatians 1, 19. He also appears to James when he goes after his conversion. He appears to the apostles and James, as mentioned by name in Galatians 1, 19 and 2, 9. He, this is all the same uh, same Lord's half-brother, the pastor of Jerusalem church, the man who uh, Paul mentions in Galatians. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 7, the list of people who saw the resurrected Lord. James is, is listed by name as he's was seen. Christ was seen by the apostles, by Peter, by Paul, by 500. But he also has mentioned James there in Acts or in 1 Corinthians 15, as he saw the resurrected Christ, and he was his half brother, obviously. But we'll notice in James 1 verse 1 how he presents himself. If you are the half brother of the Messiah the risen Lord, who is now at God's right hand interceding for us, wouldn't you think that you would introduce a letter that you write as James, the half-brother of the Lord? Like, whoa. Yeah, he grew up with Jesus as his older brother. Jesus was always right, and James always got in trouble, right? (laughs) That's how it worked, and Jesus was always right, and James should have gotten in trouble because he wasn't always right. But James is now a follower of Christ. He has... um, been probably chosen by the leadership of the early church and the apostles in Jerusalem to head the church up in Jerusalem, and he fulfills that capacity probably until his martyrdom. Right after the book of Acts is done, we think church history tells us that James probably was um, was killed uh, in about A.D. 62. So the book of Acts ends roughly in the beginning, uh, A.D. 60 or 61, I believe, and so a year or two after Acts ends, uh, James is is martyred. So that's who uh, James is. When did he write? I'm trying to go chronologically through the New Testament. I probably should have started with James, but I started with uh, the uh, the Gospels and Acts, and now we're gonna now I'm gonna go chronologically through when when the Bi- when the New Testament was written is when I'm gonna try to go uh, and hopefully be done in 20 years, and I'm uh, seven. <laughs> Seven years into it, so 13 more to go. Um, hopefully I can keep you awake for 13 years. All right. James does not quote any of the Gospels, and that is unique to him because uh, if he writes when he, we think he does, the Gospels weren't written by the time James is written. Okay, So James writes before the Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are written. Obviously before John, because John writes near the end of his life, almost at uh, uh, 50, 40 years after this. But we think James writes before Acts 15 because of the, de- uh, the decision in Acts 15. We think two books of the New Testament are written before that. James is one of them, and then Galatians. If James is written between 45 and 49, uh, it makes it the very first book of the New Testament written. And if we read it that way, it will help us to uh, put some pieces together of why doesn't James say this, or why doesn't he bring this up? It's because he writes first, okay? He doesn't have other scripture to reference, so he is writing first. But we'll see in our next, uh, uh, in in two slides, of how uh, parallel James is to the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll do some comparison this morning. 
to see that what Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, James knew it, the early church knew it, and so James writes in a way that parallels a lot of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. Uh, and so he writes uh, the first book of the New Testament. It's interesting, if you look with me at James 1, verse 2, how it starts. It starts as a letter, a little bit different than Paul's letters, uh, because James writes to a broad variety of Jewish people, uh, and most likely Jewish Christians. He calls himself a servant. That word should be slave. Uh, and New American Standard says bondservant, um, but it, it's the Greek word for slave. So James is a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James is qualified to write this book, not because he's related to Jesus Christ, but because Jesus Christ is his Lord. That's very important that earthly um, connections are not as strong as heavenly connection to God. And no one gets to the Father except through Christ, and no one is a Christian unless they confess that Jesus is Lord. He is Master. So you see slave and master both in this first verse, and James says, I am a slave of God, and I'm a slave of the Lord, my Master. That's the word Master, Jesus Christ. And based on that position, I'm writing to the 12 tribes, uh, which obviously is a Jewish audience, in the dispersion, which uh, we'll find out when the tribes were dispersed, the Jewish believers were dispersed out of Jerusalem. So James had a large church that he oversaw until persecution really ramped up in the book of Acts, and we have two verses that tell us that. And then he writes to this as their pastor, former pastor, he's writing this book, and it's being spread throughout. We'll see three different places, but uh, he did. Oh, back to that. How it's parallel to Job. Job is probably the first Old Testament book written, and James is the first New Testament book written, but look at verse 2 of James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He starts this book with the flavor of trials. Now, he's writing to people who have been kicked out of their homes and had fleed because of persecution. Today, we'd call them refugees. Okay, So he is writing to Christian refugees, and refugees to this day, if you find someone who's a refugee, they need a lot of comfort and encouragement. They know what it's like to go through trials. They may have escaped their country with just them and their families. They may have left all of their wealth there, all that they have worked to, to, uh, to accomplish, their retirement, everything they've left behind, and now they are left trying to find work, trying to learn a language, trying to provide for their family. And that's where the Jewish people who, who James is writing to, they're getting this letter from their pastor, and they are going to be encouraged uh, by this. But he starts with trials. Now, what do we know about the book of Job when it comes to trials? It is trials as well. So how, how many times do we have someone like, uh, like Peter or Daniel that they trust Christ and we help them to grow as a Christian and the first thing we talk about is the trials? Say, what? Well, that's where James starts, the New Testament starts. It's actually where Paul was when someone discipled Paul, Ananias, came it was told Paul the day he was, or three days after he was converted to Christianity, how much he would suffer for the name of Christ. 
We often tell people that when you trust Christ, your problems are done. That's prosperity gospel. That is not New Testament Christianity. The New Testament is written, and when people trusted Christ, their lives got harder physically, but a whole lot easier spiritually and hope eternally. So Job lost all of his children in one day, lost all of his wealth. And actually, James tells us about Job in, in uh, James chapter 5. You want to look there? Uh, James 5. Job is mentioned. And what about the story of Job would have comforted the dispersed Jewish uh, recipients of this letter? Verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord in all of those trials, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James starts with various trials and to stay enduring in those. We'll look at that next week as we, uh, as we look verse by verse. But James references Job and how Job was steadfast because he knew, um, he knew the Lord, walked with the Lord. And the end of the book of Job is where we need to focus that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He's the same in the Old Testament. He's the same in the New Testament. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is always compassionate and merciful. So this will help endure through trials, knowing who our God is. And I thought it fascinating that the first New Testament book parallels the first Old Testament book, that they both have this idea of trials, testing, suffering uh, in them. To whom does James write? We're going to go back to Acts 8 and, uh, and 11. So hold your hand here. We'll come back to James in a second. But in Acts 8 and 11, we find that there is a reference to this dispersion, the dispersion of the Jews, this them really getting kicked out, forced out by persecution. The Apostle Paul is uh, heading up some of that persecution. But in Acts 8.1 and Acts 11.19, we find after Stephen is martyred, the men who killed him with stoning, by stoning, laid their um, coats at the young man's feet named Saul. You see that in Acts 7, verse 58. And then Acts 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. So Saul was part of this execution of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, and Samaria except the apostles. So God uh, supernaturally probably protected the apostles and allowed them to help the church. James actually stays here as well in Jerusalem. We don't see him leaving. But a lot of his church went from 20,000 plus members of this church to a lot less. Okay, And they're scattered throughout. It says here that they're scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So that was uh, modern-day Israel. It would be like the size of our state of Massachusetts. Okay, so if persecution started in Boston, we're pretty close to Boston. But if we had to flee our homes here but could stay in Massachusetts, we'd go to the west, we'd go to the Cape, we'd go somewhere else. Uh, that would be like this persecution here that uh, is starting with the death of Stephen. Now let's go over to Acts 11, a couple pages over. And uh, the dispersion is mentioned again in Acts. 
And they go farther than just Israel. They get kicked out and are persecuted. Because remember, when, when Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul before he's converted, he gets word that there are Christians everywhere, and he is going after them. He is going, and everywhere they're at, he even has papers from the high priest to go outside of Israel to uh, modern-day Syria, uh, Damascus, and that's where he's on his way to arrest Christians there and bring them back uh, to Jerusalem for a trial. And uh, uh, hopefully he's thinking uh, execution. And so uh, they are getting persecuted within uh, Judea and Samaria. And they even go out to Damascus, which is farther than that. And Paul's going to go after them there. And that's when he's converted on the road to Damascus. But let's see what we, we can learn from Acts 11, verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, that's Acts 7 that we just read about in Acts 8.1. They traveled as far as Phoenicia, that's modern-day Lebanon, and Cyprus, still called Cyprus today, an island in the Mediterranean, and Antioch, that's north of Lebanon in the corner of the, um, I think it's modern-day Syria, Syrian Antioch, but that's where the Christians uh, have a hub. That's where Paul is sent out on his missionary journeys from this Antioch. But that is far north, several hundred miles north of Israel is Antioch. So they have dispersed some on a boat to Cyprus, some all the way up the side of the Mediterranean in Phoenicia, and then all the way up to Antioch. And so that's where they have scattered to this point in Acts 11. So James is writing... Um, roughly about the same time that Paul starts his missionary journeys. Okay, so, and he's writing to these scattered Jewish Christians. And remember, as, as Paul travels around the, in his uh, missionary journeys that we just have studied in Acts, he finds Jewish, sometimes believers. Um, the uh, two, Aquila and Priscilla, are believers, and they, they could have uh, dispersed, but there's others that are faithfully uh, worshiping the Lord. We even find disciples of John the Baptist in Acts 19 that have uh, possibly uh, dispersed as well. So James writes to the, uh, the Jewish Christians. Many times you'll see in the book of James the word brothers, uh, which is a common name for uh, Christians called each other brother, and we still kind of do that today. There's a Christian brother, and what makes us related is our uh, we are part of Christ's family. So what does James write? If you are trying to lead someone to Christ and tell them they need to be turned from sin and trust Christ alone, I wouldn't use James. Just like in the Old Testament, if you wanted to know how to become a Christian, you wouldn't look at the book of Proverbs. Because Proverbs gives us wisdom to how to live after salvation. James gives us wisdom on how to live after salvation. Some reformers like Martin Luther did not like James because he is fighting, fighting against the established religions of his day for salvation is by grace alone and faith alone, Christ alone, uh, God's word alone. And it seems like James contradict, contradicts some of those uh, Reformation doctrines. So Martin Luther loved Galatians, which talked about the, the truth of the gospel. And if you wanted to to convince someone that they are lost in need of a Savior. Galatians is a good place to start. Uh, the Gospel of John or Romans. But James uh, writes first in the New Testament, but he writes to believers. He's not writing to the world as John's Gospel is written to the world to convince people that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. James is writing to Christians. And so his themes, even though he writes before Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount, 
uh, uh, James' um, parallelness to the Sermon on the Mount is remarkable. And so we'll just look at a few. We're just going to stay in the book of James, and this will remind us of things in the Sermon on the Mount. So we're not going to flip back and forth. Uh, That would take too long. Uh, But we'll look through James to see uh, there is uh, likeness to uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which is Christ's first sermon that's recorded for us in Matthew 5 to 7. So the first reference that you'll see is the James reference, and we'll just follow James as we go through this, and I'll try to point out how it's uh, parallel to the Sermon on the Mount. So I just have these uh, themes from the Sermon on the Mount. So let's compare 2, 5. So go to James 2, verse 5. And this is parallel to a beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, that's what Jesus taught. James knew what Jesus taught. And as he writes to the the scattered Jewish uh, Christians throughout the Roman Empire, they would have been reminded, oh yeah, remember this on the Sermon on the Mount. It's not in writing yet for them. Matthew writes after James, most likely. But James sounds like Sermon on the Mount. James 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3. The next place in James, James 3, verses 10 through 12. James 3, verses 10 through 12. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things are not to be so. Talking about the tongue, how, tr- how much trouble we have to control it. Verse 11, does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brother, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can salt pond yield fresh water. Jesus said, by your fruits, in Matthew 7, 15 to 20, by your fruits you will know them. How do we know if someone really trusts Christ as their Savior? Look at the fruit of their life. Look at what's coming out of their mouth, James says. And Jesus says, look at the fruit of their life, and by their fruits we can judge whether or not they are truly believers. James uh, draws on that as well. James chapter 3, verse 18. James talks of a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In Matthew 5, 9, one of the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers. So, bringing up the idea of uh, peacefulness, uh, making peace, and Christ said, blessed are those who are peacemakers. Over to chapter 5 of James. Chapter 5, verses 2 to 3. He says to a warning to the rich again, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and the corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Whoa! James is very similar if you read uh, 1 John. James doesn't pull any punches. James would be a good New Englander. He would tell you like it is. It is so refreshing to come back to New England when you travel in other parts of the country because you're not sure what people think about you. But here, it's obvious. I don't like that. I don't know why. That's the dumbest thing you've ever said or ever done. Or that's the ugliest color. Or where did you get that outfit? I mean, you just hear things like that and you think, oh, I don't have to guess. I mean, they just, they just don't like it. Okay? And I hear that and I say, I'm home. This is home. And I like it. My wife grew up in the South and she likes it. Okay? This is, uh, this is our home. 
And James is like, when you read James in, in New Eng, with New England, with a New England mind, you will see that James would fit well as a pastor in New England. Okay? He will tell you like it is. He, he's warning here. Now, he is comforting and convincing Christians uh, and helping them to walk with the Lord from a distance. That's the purpose of this letter, is to encourage them, but he's not going to take it easy on them. They are suffering. They need comfort, but they also need, you better act like a Christian, is what he's going to say. Okay? And so, how does James 5, uh, 2 to 3, remind us of the Lord's Sermon on the Mount? Well, he told us, Christ told us not to lay up treasure on earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. And that sounds like James 5, 2 to 3. And then finally, uh, before you is uh, James 5.12. James 5.12 says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by another oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. You know the reason we have to sign so many papers when we buy houses today? Because no one keeps their word. You know why packaging in stores is, uh, it's impossible to get toys unwrapped at Christmas time? Because people steal parts of toys. That's why toy prices are high. And parts of some toys are, that aren't tied to the back and you can't get the Barbie off without almost taking her head off. And everything is attached inside these toys is because people steal. No one keeps their word anymore. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in it, uh, five verses, and it almost is word for word from what James summarizes, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be a person of your word. Jesus said in Matthew 5, and James says again in Matthew 5, or James 5, 12, um, you don't need oaths, you don't need all these contracts. If you are living as a Christian should live, your handshake, your word should be enough. And if it's not enough, you might be condemned. Okay, you might not be a Christian. Okay, so James writes, and he is uh, remarkably parallel to Sermon on the Mount. So we're just going to go through the book of James, and if you have tight headings, uh, these are very similar to what the headings are, and we'll see how these themes fit together on our final slide. So James is about trials and how important the Word of God is to us. James 2 talks about a Christian should live without favoritism, without partiality, and your work should show that you're actually a believer. You can't say that you have faith without works, and we read that in our scripture reading uh, this morning. Chapter 3 talks about the tongue, the first part of it. The second part of James 3 tells us about wisdom, where true wisdom comes from, what earthly wisdom looks like, and earthly wisdom is different than God's wisdom, and it does a, a comparison, and James doesn't mix any words there, and very helpful to know how to live wisely and how to compare earthly wisdom with heavenly. James 4 in the first part of chapter 5 talks about worldliness and how is it that we live in a very corrupt culture. We can add to the corruption, uh, and that corruption starts within all of us. James goes to the heart of a lot of issues that we'll deal with, that he deals with, that as we study through this book, um, it's like James has an MRI on our heart and can see why we're doing what we're doing. And James answers a lot of those questions of why do we struggle? Why do we have conflict? James 4 answers that. What's the resolution for all conflict? James answers that as well. 
James is an exhaustive book, or we wouldn't have other books of the Bible, but the truth that he does give us uh, addresses a lot of practical um, a lot of practical wisdom that he that uh, we'll look at. And then the final part, James ends with trusting, trusting God, the last uh, part of chapter 5. So our final slide today is, why does James write? Why is this book in our Bible? And why should we learn it? Why should we study it? Why should we apply it? Well, have you ever felt like, let's go back to James 1, verse 2. Have you ever felt like, I have trials? How many of you have ever felt like, I have trials? Yes. How many of you felt like that when you woke up this morning? And you rolled over, you're like, oh, my neck is stiff. I need a new pillow, or I need a new mattress, or I need more sleep, or something. Something's not good today. And maybe your trials have somewhat of a remedy that you have to take your medicine at a certain time. And that's part of your trials. And the doctor says, you're never going to get off this medicine until the day you die. Like, oh, man, i got to deal with this. Okay, That's part of trials. We often, as we get older, we don't have one trial at a time. We have trial after trial after trial. We may have child problems. We may have house problems. We may have car problems. We may have financial problems. We may have relational problems outside of our family. We may have church problems. We may have, you know, like, Work problems, and that's just one day. You're like, how do we deal with trials? James has an answer for that as Christians. There are a lot of people in Scripture that had a lot of various trials, and if you were kicked out of your homeland and trying to survive like a refugee today, James would speak to you. And as we have various trials, James is going to speak to that and what God expects of us through these trials. And God gives us his word. And we can live godly, in a very ungodly, harsh, unfair, full of trials world. We'll talk about that, Lord willing, next week. So James writes to comfort and convince, as any pastor would. If he, is, if he was your pastor, he would ask you how, you how your day was. How's your family doing? He'd be concerned for you. And as you go through various trials, he'd say, you know what, God has something to say about that. And God has hope for you in the midst of your trials. God is always with you. And he would be, he would, a good, a good pastor. This is how pastors, people that God wires to be pastors, have uh, this idea that I want to comfort. But some people don't need comforting. Disobedient children don't need some shoulder to cry on. Disobedient children need discipline. So disobedient Christians don't need comfort. They need convincing. Hey, what you're doing is wrong. And James is going to step on a lot of toes in his book. Only five short chapters, but he is going to comfort and convince with God's truth. So what are some of the themes? And I chose uh, one word here uh, for our title. It's wholeness. I could have chosen completeness, but let's look at James uh, 1, verse 4, 17, and 25. So all in James 1, look at verse 4. He uses the word twice in James 1, 4. Let steadfastness have its, perf or its full effect. Full there is the word complete or whole. That you may be perfect, that's the same word as full, and complete, lacking nothing. So wholeness or completeness um, is God's intended 
why, why James writes this, and God wants the Jewish people who are scattered, who are believers, who are struggling through life, struggling to cope with the, the persecution that's around them, and uh, what has made life harder for them, James writes and says, count it all joy, brothers. And then uh, chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift, the word perfect there is our word whole. Everything that God does is intended to help us to be whole or complete. I don't know about you, but in doing a puzzle, I can't stand doing a puzzle and then finding when I get to the end, there's a piece missing. Ah, oh, especially if it's a thousand piece or that took more than a day, more than two days, more than three days. And you drop pieces on the floor and you find them and you put, okay, okay, I'm not, this is not going to be the piece <laughs> that's going to keep me from feeling complete. When we get the puzzle done and it's on the table and it took a while, you say, wow, that looks good. I'm going to take a picture. I'm going to send it to everyone who helped me. But if you have a piece missing, it's like, oh. It's done, but it's a bittersweet, done feeling. That is getting to the end of life or near maturity. This word could also mean maturity. Other places in the New Testament trans translates it mature. Um, but James, the, the root of all of the words that it could be translated is this idea of whole or complete, having all of your parts. And it is possible, James tells us, to have all of the pieces that you need to make wise choices, even in a harsh world, it's possible God gives us all the resources that we need to be whole or complete. You don't have to have part of, the, part of it and to be frustrated through life. We look for completeness from our God as he gives us every good and completing gift, which is from above, verse 17. Verse 25 God also gives us his word, but the one who looks into the perfect or whole or completing law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, uh, being not a hearer uh, who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. God's word, God's gifts, God's trials that he allows us, all of those are so that we will be whole or complete. And then James 3.2, in this process, we struggle with our tongue and we all, James 3, 2 is so encouraging because there has been way more than a few times that I've had to put my foot in my mouth. And uh, if you're honest and you've lived life, you'll say, yes, that's me too. Well, James 3, 2 says, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect, completely whole man. He's able to bridle the whole body. He's got his whole body under self-control. He doesn't need to change or grow at all because he is complete. He's got all his parts, but... Uh, we all struggle with our tongue, and James is going to help us in this struggle with our tongue. So being whole or complete. And the second word that I chose is wisdom. James 1.5 says, if any of you lack wisdom during trials, you cry out to God. James 2, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. You're having wisdom. If you look at the end of James 3, I, I mentioned this, that there is a comparison that James gives us that we'll look at in detail. But look at verse 13 of James 3. Who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct? Let him show by his works in the meekness of wisdom. 
And then he's going to show us what godly wisdom and earthly wisdom looks like. Wisdom is what? Someone said, wisdom is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. No, knowledge is knowing tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. So knowledge gives us facts. There are a lot of facts in Scripture about who God is and who we are. But if we won't act upon the facts, we are not wise. Knowledge knows a Mack truck will mess you up if you stand in front of it on the road. Wisdom says, I'm never going to be on the road. I'm not going to chase the ball out on the Methuen Street when a big truck is coming down the road. Wisdom says, let the ball get crushed, not me. So knowledge is knowing truth. Wisdom is applying the truth that you have. And this book is parallel to Proverbs in the Old Testament, is a book that's full of wisdom. Well, how, why do we need wisdom as Christians? We need to live out our faith. People can trust Christ, and that's great. And we baptize them, and they're following, and they want to obey Christ. But there's a lot of wisdom that these two young men do not have. I'm only 40 years old, and I realize as a pastor at only 40 years old, there's a lot of wisdom that I do not have. And I am learning, constantly learning. I'm reading blogs, and as much uh, other pastors' input and other godly men' input I can get in my life on a weekly basis, I try to get because I don't have the wisdom I need to deal with the various trials. And God gives us wisdom to live out our faith, and he expects us to. We can. So we all need this book. Why do we need this book? To challenge us to live wisely as a whole Christian. God wants to use our lives. And if we reject the pieces of wisdom that God gives us here in James, we're going to struggle even more in life. Our trials are going to be harder. Our relationships are going to be more difficult. Our tongue is going to be less under control. And God gives us truth here that will help us uh, to walk wisely. And when we walk wisely, God can use us. And when God uses us, we can glorify him. I hope that's your heart. That's your goal. The people that James wrote to, they would have loved this letter. And as we get into it, in the weeks and months ahead, I hope you would uh, come expecting to hear from God and expecting God to give you wisdom. Expect to get your toes stepped on. Expect to be challenged, uh, but we all need to be challenged to live wisely as a whole or complete uh, Christian. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your truth uh, in your word. We thank you for this uh, wonderful book. We can't wait to get into it and study it and memorize and meditate on it day and night so that we can um, be changed. Show us yourself uh, in this book as we uh, see Christ in all of his wisdom and God in all of your glory. We want to see you and we want to see ourselves in need of you. I pray for those here today who do not know you yet as their Savior. They're trying to live wisely without knowing the God of all wisdom, the God of all comfort. I pray that today would be the day that they would fear you, turn away from sin, Trust completely in Jesus' death and resurrection for them. I pray that um, you would use these young men as they have committed to uh, obeying you, that you'd use their lives to make wise choices 
and use them uh, for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.